You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. The scripture reading tonight comes from John 8, 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What we're going to talk about tonight is a great passage from um, John chapter 8. And to set it up, here's how I want to set it up. I want, to, I want us to think about the movie Django Unchained. Yes. Which is a movie I cannot officially recommend <laughs> at this point uh, from up here. But if you've seen the movie, it's a pretty graphic, um, horrible, awful look at American slavery. It takes place in the 1800s, and it, it, it's, it focuses in on Django, who is uh, a slave that's played by Jamie Foxx. And the setup of the story is that he has a wife who has been... Um, Sold, and she's in. She's essentially the property of this slave master, who's played by the Leonardo DiCaprio character, who is this sadistic, brutal, awful slave master that makes her do unspeakable things and uh, abuses her and mistreats her. And so Django and one of his little assassin friends kind of go on this rescue mission to go rescue his wife out from under kind of the the. the control of this slave master and when they finally arrive at this kind of plantation she is uh, being punished because she has been because she has attempted an escape from the plantation so when, when they come upon the land the estate she's lying naked in this metal box in the ground it's called a hot box and so that what this movie does, I think, is so fascinating. It gives you just this, it gives you a glimpse of how brutal and awful slavery really is. And to, to be owned by somebody that has more power than you and forces you to do unspeakable things against your will. And the reason why I kind of want to start with that image is because that's the image that Jesus uses to describe us. Here's where I get this from. Look at, um, uh, look at verse 32. It's this famous verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That quote is carved in stone in the CIA headquarters right now. In fact, that quote is also, I've heard, it's plastered at several different philosophy departments at different universities around the country. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we're so familiar with that quote that we we don't really catch how offensive it is because that's how Jesus's readers heard it they were deeply offended by that for Jesus to say you will know the truth and the truth will set you free what does that assume if the truth will set you free it assumes you're not free it, it assumes that you're a slave 
And so look at, um, uh, look at how they respond in verse 33. They don't respond by saying, wow, the truth will set you free. That is a beautiful quote. We should put that on a wall somewhere. Someone needs to tweet that quick. No, what they say is, uh, verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, even if you've never read the Bible or if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, even if you've, if you've just happened to seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, their response here is a little confusing because they're like, we're Jewish people. We're, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. And you're like, except to Egypt for like 400 years. <laughs> and like now currently to Rome for like the past 300 so it's a little confusing, but what Jesus is talking about is, is a deeper kind of slavery, is spiritual slavery. So what I want to do is I, I want to try to unpack what Jesus is getting at, and I want to do so in three ways. Big surprise. Here's what I want to uh, look at. How, um, what enslaves you, how it enslaves you, and then how you can be free. So that's, those are the three ideas we're going to look at. What is it that enslaves you? How... Does it enslave you? And then how can you be set free? So let's look at what enslaves us. What does Jesus uh, think? And Jesus is pretty explicit. Look at verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin, who commits sin? Everyone. Jesus is saying, everyone, therefore, is a slave to sin. Now, Let's hit pause and time out for just a second because I realize that word sin can feel so outdated and so off-putting. I don't know what images come to your mind when you hear that word, sin. I think probably when I was in your shoes, when I heard the word sin, I thought of like the preacher guy that comes to campus and yells at everybody for sinning and fornicating and doing things. I don't don't even know what he's talking about. But like when when I hear the word... when people hear the word sin, I think that they typically think it's individual actions, behaviors that I sometimes do occasionally that's bad. That's what sin is. It's, it's bad decisions. It's bad behaviors that I do every now and then. And that's not the idea that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about external actions. He says sin is rather an internal power. Sin is something inside of you it's a force inside of you that owns you and controls you. In fact, since this is Halloween and we're all dressed up, I, I thought this was apt. One author described fallen human beings as haunted houses. And I thought that was an interesting image. He's basically saying every fallen human being is a haunted house, meaning there's this evil force that has come inside of you and has taken up residence and has taken over your heart and over your life. So... It is not true that we are sinners because we sin. What is actually more true is that we sin because we're sinners. You see the distinction? It's not true that we are sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because that's who we are. We're sinners. Now, I realize that might sound incredibly weird to you. Haunted houses, evil forces living inside of you, taking over your life. Here's what Jesus is basically saying. If you're enslaved, that essentially means that you're controlled by a slave master. Something other than yourself owns you. Think of it like this. Um, 
There's a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, for my philosophy people out there. And Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book in 1849 called Sickness Unto Death. And here's how he defined sin. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll explain it because it's a little clunky. 1800 language. Here's what he says. Sin is in despair not wanting to be oneself before God. Sin is when you're in despair and you don't want to be yourself before God. And conversely, faith is that the self, in being itself and wanting to be itself, is grounded transparently before God. Now, translation, here's what he just said. Sin is when you find a sense of self in something other than God. Sin is when you try to find an identity in anything other than God. That, whatever that is, is your slave master, and that's what controls you. Now, here's what this looks like in practice, because I realize all of this kind of sounds weird and theoretical. Here's what this looks like in real life. Let's say the thing that you try to find a sense of self in is in what other people think of you. What you think will make you the most happy in life, the thing that, uh, the the person that you want to be is the person that's well thought of. Person everybody likes, everybody thinks is cool. So when you're at RUF or when you're with your young life friends or when you're with your church people, you act a certain way. You um, are kind and are thoughtful and you ask deep questions and you're concerned about deep spiritual things. And then when you're with a different group of friends, your fraternity friends, your sorority friends, people from class, people from work, you're more carefree, you live it up a little bit. Uh, you kind of say whatever to get a laugh. When you're on the phone with your parents or when you're around your parents, you kind of put forward how busy you are, how hard you're working, how you're making good decisions. And so you think that you're controlling everybody's opinion of you, but what's actually true is that your opinion, what people think about you, that's the thing that's controlling you. You think that you're controlling everybody's opinion of you, but it's actually true that everyone's opinion of you is what's controlling you, and you're enslaved, and you might not even know it. For others of you, uh, the, the thing that you try to find your identity in, the thing that you are finding your sense of self in, is your schoolwork, your GPA, your grades, your accomplishments, your achievements. And so you're busy, and you're involved, and you're stretched thin, and you're stressed, And you think that you're controlling your schedule, but it's actually your schedule that's controlling you. Because the only friendships that you have are the people that happen to just fit within your schedule. You only relate to the people that just happen to fit within the thing that's controlling your life. You're stressed out, you're exhausted, you can't sleep, you overdrink because you justify it in that, oh, this was just a really stressful week, had a ton of exams. You're enslaved to this thing. You think you're in control of your schedule. No, it's controlling you. That's the point. Jesus is saying, whatever you're finding a sense of self in, other than God, that's your slave master, and you're enslaved to it, and it's controlling you, and it's dominating your life. But Jesus actually goes a step deeper here. He doesn't just say what's enslaving you. He shows you how it enslaves you with that, with that imagery of being a slave to it. And so let's look at the second idea. How does it enslave you? And I think it's really fascinating. If you analyze how addiction works, you will get a good idea of how sin works in our life. The, the enslaving, empower, you know, the, the power of sin in your life. 
it's, it's very close to addiction. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but let's go into a little bit more depth here. Here's kind of what the addiction cycle looks like. Step one is pain, which everybody experiences. Everyone experiences some level of pain, of feeling inferior to somebody. Maybe it's emotional pain, maybe it's physical pain, whatever. It's, it's some sense of, I don't feel right, I don't feel good, which leads to step two, which is medication. You try to escape the pain. You try to numb the pain. So you self-soothe. You go to things that try to make you forget about the pain or get rid of the pain or distract yourself long enough to have to feel the pain. And it could be anything, right? It could be you just throwing yourself into your schoolwork. It could be Netflix. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be porn. It could be hooking up. It could be shopping. It could be cleaning. It could be cutting. That's step two. Step three, whatever you choose to medicate yourself with, it works. That's step three. It actually works, which is what most Christians don't tell you. Most, most Christian cultures try to give you the impression, if you, if you get hammered, if you hook up, you're not going to like it. It's going to feel miserable. Don't do it. And then you go out and you do it, and you're like, that was actually kind of amazing. It works. It actually works temporarily, which leads to step four. It it stops working. It stops working. Uh, It doesn't last for long. It gets old. It wears off. And so you've got to, you've got to, you know, you build up a tolerance. And so you've got to up the dosage to get the same effect, which leads to step five is you experience some level of guilt and shame. Self-criticism. The voice comes in that says, I can't believe I did that again. Ever thought that? How did I do that again? And then the voice comes in, if you're a Christian, real Christians don't do this. Real Christians don't struggle with this. Which leads you to pain, step one. And you're right back where you started. And that's the cycle. And round and round we go. And so when Jesus comes along and says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, you're now like, okay, I get that. I know what it's like to feel enslaved to something that I can't break free from. And so what I want to do is to think deeper about how does our sin actually enslave us? I mean, if you think, even just use that image from Django Unchained and put yourself in the movie and say, how does my sin treat me like that? What does it feel like to actually be a slave? I tried to think, I thought of four things, and I'll just work through them with you real quick. Here's the first thing I think that it would feel like to be a slave, is that you do things that you don't want to do, and you don't get to do the things that you want to do. That's when you know that you're in bondage. That's when you know that something more powerful than you owns you and dominates you. You do things that you don't want to do, and you're not doing the things that you want to do. In fact, that's exactly how Paul describes his relationship with sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and all the good stuff that I want to do, I don't end up doing that. I mean, you've felt this before, right? Why do I keep doing that? I don't want to do that. I know that it's bad. I know that it's harmful. I know that it's destructive. I keep doing it. Have you ever asked yourself, why do you keep doing that? The Bible gives you an answer. It's because you're enslaved. 
That's the first feature of what it feels like to be a slave. Here's the second one. You live beneath the level of a human being. Whatever it is that owns you and controls you, it dehumanizes you. It makes you live in such a way that is beneath you as a human being. Beneath what God created you to be. I want to illustrate it this way. This is, this is what one of my friends, Sean Slate, told me. He's the pastor at Redeemer in town. Give a shout out to William Slate. And um, he told me the story. This is a true phenomenon. I looked it up on the internet, which confirms that it's true. But there's a, there's a reality. Okay, so let's talk about meth addiction for a second. And I don't understand the science behind it, but for some reason, people that are addicted to meth develop scabs on their faces and on their bodies. Which, by the way, if, you, if you're an easy, queasy kind of person, you may want to sit this one out. This is a disturbingly disgusting story I'm about to tell you. So block your ears for the next 30 seconds. Here we go. For some reason, you develop scabs on your face if, you, if you're doing meth stuff. And this is why, if you've ever seen Breaking Bad, like the hardcore meth addicts, that they, like the characters they run into always have these sores all over their face. Anyway... If, you're, if you get arrested and you're addicted to meth and you get brought into the prison, you still have all these fresh scabs on you. But the reality is all the people behind bars that, have, that are still addicted to meth but don't have access to it anymore, when somebody new comes through the door, the first chance people get, somebody's blocking their ears like this in the back, the first chance that the inmates get with the fresh people that come in, is they hold them down as a group and begin to peel the scabs off of their face and then eat them. Because there's still a little bit of meth still in the blood that has hardened and scabbed, and if you ingest it, you get a little bit of a high. I mean, that's real-life Halloween zombie stuff. That's messed up. But here's, here's, here's my point. Let's just close in prayer. What do y'all think? We need to pray for people. Bad. But my point is, whatever it is that's controlling you, as disgusting and as horrific as that image is, whatever it is that controls you, you become less than a human being. It dehumanizes you. Your porn addiction is dehumanizing you. It's dehumanizing you. It is not what you were made for. And you, and you know it. You know it is. And it's actually dehumanizing the person on the screen as well. Because you're relating to somebody as if they're less than a human being. Your self-righteousness is dehumanizing you. When you look at other people on this campus and think that they are beneath you because you make better decisions or you go to bed early or you eat clean or whatever, that's dehumanizing you. That's, 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 that's what it's like to be a slave. Whatever it is that's controlling you dehumanizes you. Here, here's the third feature of being a slave. There's nothing you can do to set yourself free. There's nothing you can do to free yourself. That's what it means to be enslaved, to be in bondage, to be trapped. We tend to think our biggest problems are things outside of us. It's our classes, it's our professors, it's our friends, it's our parents, it's our roommates, it's our idiot boyfriends, it's whatever. But the Bible is saying, as real as those problems are, your main problem is that there is something at the center of your heart that you love more than God, and that thing 
is enslaving you and trapping you and you can't free yourself from it. And then here's the last one. Here's the last feature of what it feels like to be a slave. Eventually, over time, you don't want to be free anymore. There's a great quote from the movie Shawshank Redemption, which if you've seen it, it's, it focuses in on this story of these people in prison, kind of in this kind of penitentiary with these big walls, and they're out in this courtyard one day, and they're looking at these walls, and here's what kind of the older guy that's been in prison for a long time says to one of the new guys that just got there. He says this. These walls are kind of funny. First, you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, it gets so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take the part that counts anyway. I think what's interesting about that quote is it shows you that over time, the thing that's removing your freedom is the thing that you cling to. This this is what psychologists, this is what psychologists refer to as Stockholm Syndrome. And it happens spiritually, where you become protective of and dependent upon the very thing that has you captive. I mean, this has happened to you, right? This has happened to me. Haven't you experienced this where, where you go too far with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're just like, ah, oh, we need to stop. We don't want to do that anymore. And you have to talk. And then you do it again. And then you have to talk. And there's this part of you that's like, I really do want to stop. But over time, it just becomes harder and harder to stop and you stop having the conversation because deep down... Your relationship almost needs it. That sort of sexual behavior has become integral to how y'all relate. And so, yes, you really do want to stop, but there's this bigger, deeper part of you that does not. You don't want to be free anymore. There's this great prayer that St. Augustine wrote in the 4th century where he wrote this in his book, Confessions. He writes this, God, give me purity, but not yet. Isn't that an amazingly honest prayer. God, this sexual sin is so toxic in dehumanizing me. Please free me from it. Give me purity. But not quite yet. Because I need it. I still love it. Maybe, Maybe later. Maybe down the road. That's how your sin enslaves you. You do things you don't want to do. You can't free yourself. Uh, you live, beneath, it dehumanizes you. And over time, actually, you don't want to be free. And so here's the question. Do you want to be free? And I don't think that's a question you should just think that you know the answer to really quickly. Because it's way more complicated. There's a part of you that's like, um, no, don't want to be free. If you do want to be free, let's look at this third thing. How do you become free? And I want to give it, I want to make this really simple and just give you three quick bullet points. It's the ABCs. Here's the A. Admit. Admit that you're enslaved, that you're trapped, that you're stuck. And, and you can't free yourself. And I think for many of us, that is, that is the most hardest, most hardest, that is the hardest, most difficult thing for us to admit about ourselves. Because for most of us, we're just living our life and we're going to class and we're hanging out with friends and we're just kind of, you're doing you and it doesn't feel like you're a slave. You don't even know what's controlling you. You don't even know what's motivating your life. 
So to admit I'm stuck, I'm trapped, I can't get out, it's so hard. But that's the first step. You have to admit I'm a slave and I can't free myself. B. Believe that Jesus is the only master that can set you free. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If Jesus frees you, you're you're truly free. Do you know what what crucifixion was was reserved for back in the day? It It was a capital punishment by the state reserved for enemies of the state and slaves. So when Jesus voluntarily dies on a cross, he chooses to die a slave's death. He becomes a slave and loses his freedom so that you can be free. He gets nailed down to a cross so that you can break free. Every other slave master that you and I serve and give our life to, what they provide for you is good, but it's temporary. It gets old. It wears off. Jesus' mercies are new every morning. His mercies never get old. They never run out. Hasn't this been true for you? Have you you experienced this where you read a verse or something that you've read a hundred times and all of a sudden, randomly, it just kind of pops and unlocks and you just see an aspect of God in a new way and you experience his presence in a new way? Or you go to RUF and you've been here a hundred times or you go to church, you've been a thousand times and then all of a sudden you experience the presence of God in a unique way? Because his mercies don't get old. They're fresh. They're new every morning. They don't wear out. Every other slave master, by the way, when you fail them, they punish you. If you build your life on your grades and you bomb a test, you will beat the crap out of yourself. That is your slave master beating you and punishing you for failing it. If you build your life and try to find a sense of self on a romantic relationship and that thing falls apart, you will be utterly devastated. Jesus is the only master that when you fail him, forgives you. That he has endless mercy and grace no matter how many times you fail him. Tim Keller put it this way. Jesus is the only master that when you find him, will fulfill you. And when you fail him, will forgive you. Every other master won't. He is the only master that when you find him will fulfill you and when you fail him will forgive you. That is freedom. That's freedom. That's B. Believe that Jesus is the only master that can set you free. And here's the last thing, C. You continue your life in him. And look, we're, we're going to talk about this a lot more in detail all through the spring semester. So I'm just going to make a passing swoop at this right now. Jesus doesn't just die for you back then, but he also gives you himself. He gives you his spirit right now. In other words, Jesus doesn't just pay for the penalty of your sin. He frees you from the power of your sin right now. The Bible assumes this, that it is possible to believe in Christ and yet still live like a slave. It is, one thing to, it is one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to abide in him. Did you notice who Jesus is talking to at the very beginning of the story? Look at how the passage describes it at the very top. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. He's talking to a group of people that believe in him. And he says, look, if you, if you really want to be free, if you truly want to be my disciple, 
Abide in my word. And they don't want to even hear his words. In fact, by the end of the story, in verse 37, they want to kill him. This is why he does this weird little metaphor in verse 35. I don't know if, if when, we, when Madison read it, if you're like, what is, I don't, I don't know what that is. Look at verse 35. It says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. What is he talking about? Here's what he's saying. If you picture an estate, a plantation, slaves can experience some benefits and privileges of being associated with the house because they're a part of the system there. But there is no security. They can be dismissed or sold at any point for any reason. But if you're a son, if you're a daughter, you have, you have unbelievable security because you're connected to the house. Jesus is saying, you can experience some benefits by being associated with me but you can still live like a slave. You can say you believe in me, you can be a part of Christian stuff, and yet still have a life that's dominated by fear, insecurity, and whatever it is that you're setting your life on, it's owning you and it's dominating you. Jesus says, if you want to be free, truly free, abide in my word. Now what does that mean? Does that just mean read your Bible a lot? Maybe, but I think it means more than that. And here's how I want to explain this and finish here. What does it mean to abide in his word? Have you you ever seen the movie Blood Diamond? It's on Netflix. You can see it tonight if you want. It's It's an amazing movie. It's, again, another Leonardo DiCaprio jam. And he, um, it focuses in on the diamond industry of Africa, how there are these diamond traffickers that basically kidnap small children and essentially convert them into becoming terrorists, doing awful things, killing people. Which, by the way, if you've, if you've seen this movie recently, the name of like this terrorist militant group is called RUF. I'm not lying. So when you read it, they're all like with machine guns and they're chanting, RUF, RUF. And you're like, pick a different name, not RUF. But anyway, there's this one scene at the very end where there's this 12-year-old boy that has been taken into this terrorist group, and he's holding this machine gun at his dad that has come to rescue him, free him out of this group. And he's pointing this gun at his dad, and his dad is looking at him, and here's what his dad says. The father looks at him and says, Dia, that's the kid's name, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me, look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vindi of the proud Mindy tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda and the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog, who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And the boy breaks down crying, kind of drops his gun, and runs back into the arms of his dad. <laughs> what frees him? What frees him? It is being reminded of the truth of who he was. His father's reminding him of the truth of who he was broke through the power of what was enslaving him. And Jesus is looking at you and me tonight, and he's saying, look, 
I know it feels like shame is your master. I know it feels like lust is controlling you. I know it feels like ambition and having to accomplish and achieve. That's the thing that's bossing you around. But I have freed you from that. I have paid the penalty for your sin. I have broken the power of of sin in your life. Your father is looking at you and saying, I am your father and I love you. You are my child. Come home and be my daughter. Come home and be my son. Those are the words of Jesus. To abide in that truth and that message means that you marinate on that day in and day out. Where you let Jesus define you. You let his words of who you are shape your sense of self. As one pastor put it, you essentially become a gospel addict. Where you say, I mean, even we sing this hymn sometimes here at RUF, I need thee, I need thee every hour. Have you ever thought about that? That sounds like the language of an addict. God, I need you every hour. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's for you to look at God and say, I am desperate for you every moment of every day. And that feels so weak to us, but that's actually what it means to be spiritually healthy. I need you. If I don't have you reminding me of the truth of who I am, I'm going to forget it and I'm going to go back to all these slave masters. So how do you become free? A, you admit that you're a slave and you can't free yourself. B, you believe that Jesus is the only one, only master that can free you. That when you find him, he will fulfill you and when you fail him, he will forgive you. And C, you continue your life in him, abiding in his words, abiding in Jesus because you have nothing else. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Let me pray. Father, I do pray for those of us that find ourselves enslaved and stuck and trapped tonight, that you would free us. Would you give us the courage to admit that we can't free ourselves? Give us the courage to admit that the patterns and the choices that we have made have only dug us deeper into a hole, and we need divine, supernatural rescue from ourselves. Free us by the saving and liberating grace of Jesus. For those of us in this room that know you, that believe in you, and yet still live like slaves, Father, teach us what it means to abide in your word, to drink deeply and internalize the gospel every day. Because we need you. We need you every hour. Give us much grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.